0: Understand what you want your health for. Uh, Have a clear understanding of your mission and purpose in life. Have a big, hairy, audacious goal. Because we're asking you to do something that's difficult. Uh, And so to be willing to take on something that's difficult, uh, it's helpful for you to have a clear mission, a clear purpose, a big goal.
1: Hi, everyone. Drew Prode here, host of the Broken Brain Podcast. In today's episode, we're interviewing my dear friend, physician and clinical researcher, Dr. Terry Wall. She's the author of The Wall's Protocol, a book that documents her journey from recovery of progressive MS. Look at this before and after photo. Look at the before and the after. This is Terry previously in a wheelchair, and a few years later recovered riding a bicycle. This does not happen to people that are diagnosed with progressive MS. Find out what she did to turn her life around and how she's on a movement and a mission to help other people do the same when it comes to their chronic autoimmune conditions. Stay tuned. Incredible conversation. Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast, where we dive deep into the topics of neuroplasticity, epigenetics, mindfulness, functional medicine, mindset, and more. I'm your host, Drew Piroid, and each week, my team and I bring on a new guest who we think can help you improve your brain health, feel better, and live more. All with the goal and understanding that your brain and your body is not broken. This week's guest is a friend of mine, Dr. Terry Walls. Dr. Terry Walls is a clinical professor of medicine at the University of Iowa where she conducts clinical trials. She's also the author of multiple books including The Walls Protocol, A Radical New Way to Treat All Chronic Autoimmune Conditions Using Paleo Principles, which is out in March. Uh, and you can find a link to the book to pre-order or if it's available by the time of this podcast, You can order it in the show notes. Dr. Terry Walls, welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. Hey, thanks
0: so much for having me. It's an honor to have you here.
1: So I want to start off at the beginning because your work has been out there for a while, but this is the first time that you've been on our podcast Mm -hmm. and listeners may not be familiar with your story. So let's start with your diagnosis and what diagnosis you had when it came to uh, multiple sclerosis, Uh,
0: specifically. You know, actually I'm going to take you back a little bit earlier. Please. So we'll go back to medical school, uh, 1980. I started having episodes of face pain, electrical jolts of discomfort along uh, the right side of my face, occasionally the left, and over the years these uh, episodes would become more frequent, more severe. I would eventually be diagnosed with trigeminal neuralgia seven years later, 1987. And just
1: pausing for a second. I remember reading in your story that those early episodes, you didn't necessarily think, you knew that something was not right, but you Mm -hmm. didn't think that it was something major.
0: Correct, you know, um, I'm a farm kid, Uh, your work has to get done, I thought I'm pretty stoic, and uh, I I did observe that I was more likely to have these episodes if I'd been up all night or under a lot of stress. And over time, you know, they became more frequent, more severe, Uh, and you know, finally I went to see my physician uh, in 87. And I, uh, again, was diagnosed with um, trigeminal neuralgia. I started taking, um, I believe it was Tegretol, but I developed a drug rash, so I had to stop. Uh, I tried a few other drugs. None of them really helped. And so I just had to wait for this intense period of uh, pain to subside. Sometimes it would take a week. Sometimes it would take as long as six weeks. Um, And so I just, you know, kept carrying on. Then uh, in 89, I had an episode of dim vision in my left eye. Uh, and that happened while I was out roller uh, skating, or actually rollerblading, uh, on a hot August day. I'd gone out for what I was thought was going to be a 20-mile rollerblade, but I you know, got into trouble about five miles out. And so I uh, came back, got a big evaluation, um, you know, MRIs, um, uh, referral to uh, ophthalmology, um, cardiogram, et cetera, et cetera, no clear evaluation. And then uh, in 2000, I developed weakness in my left leg. Uh, and I went back to see neurology um, and ended up with a huge evaluation MRI, MRIs, spinal taps, um, nerve conduction velocities, lots of blood tests. Uh, and that's when the diagnosis was made. Now, in, in retrospect, you know, when I had the trigeminal neuralgia and the dim vision, they could have made the diagnosis of MS much earlier uh, back in 89. But I actually am immensely grateful they did not because I probably would have not had my kids. Hmm. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm I'm very uh, fine with the fact that they, they didn't make the diagnosis. I had my kids. Uh, and then uh, when my kids were very, very young, I had more problems and would uh, have the diagnosis.
1: So starting from that point, it was, I believe, three years later from the time of that diagnosis.:
0: Yes, you know, so I uh, keep in mind, I'm a uh, conventional internal medicine doc. I believe absolutely in science. I believe in the best drugs, the newest technology. So I, of course wanted to see the best people, take the newest drugs, treat my disease very, very aggressively. Uh, so I did some research who was doing the uh, best research, uh, and I went to that center, and I saw their best person because I did that research too. And I took the newest drugs and I went relentlessly downhill. Just like my face pain had been going relentlessly downhill and worse. Uh, So within um, three years, I'm in a tilt recline wheelchair. Uh, My physicians tell me to take uh, mitoxantrone, which is a form of chemotherapy. And and I read the package insert. And there is a a 2% risk of developing leukemia with each cycle that you take. But of course, I, I'm far more terrified of becoming bedridden and demented by my illness, so leukemia looks like a pretty minor thing compared to what I was facing, so I was very happy to take the uh, mitoxantron But I went relentlessly downhill.
1: Hmm. So we actually have a photo of that time period here of you in the wheelchair. This is yeah. October 1st, 2007. And what was your mental state at that time?
0: Well, you know, uh, I was facing a very grim future. You know, uh, uh, Clearly, I was uh, going downhill. It was uh, severe fatigue. Um, my pain was increasingly severe. Um, and it was clear that the very best drugs from the very best people were unlikely to stop my slide into a bedridden life, possibly demented life, and quite possibly intractable pain. On the other hand, I have two young kids, and... Um, And so I was having to reimagine how I I parent uh, and what was most important. And that was having resilient uh, kids who could be emotionally successful and economically successful. So, and of course I can do less and less. I thought I was going to teach them uh, how to be resilient by mountain climbing, by teaching them how to do martial arts, being an athlete like I had been. Now my only tool was I could get up and go to work every day. I could do my little simple, tiny little workout, simple as it was, every day. I could model that you don't give up, even when things are incredibly difficult. And so that's what I did. And of course that was um, far harder than any of the workouts I did as an athlete.
1: Hmm. In this time period where you noticed yourself, as you mentioned earlier, progressively declining, Where was the first opening where you saw that in addition to all the best drugs that you were on, the latest technology, that there might be a new way forward for you?
0: Well, you know what, when I was taking the chemotherapy and it was not helping, and then I switched to Tizabri, the new TNF-alpha blocker, the new Biologic that um, was not helping. I'm like, okay. I want to go back to reading the basic science because when I was first diagnosed I started reading the basic science, the uh, literature, uh, and I, uh, it just really got me wound up and agitated because I saw that you know MS is a progressive disease and that's when my wife said, no, Terry, you got to stop reading, we'll get you the best people, but this is just getting you too upset. But you know, hell, now I knew how upset to be. I had a very grim future, um, but if I was going to do everything that I possibly could to slow my decline, because I... I understood all of my neurologists and everything I was reading was this is a progressive disease. I clearly had a a very aggressive case that there was no recovery, no functions that had already lost were ever going to come back, but I could try and slow it. And so I started reading the basic science uh, for uh, MS. And then I started thinking like, well, I don't really have any relapses, so I should be reading about other neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, Huntington's. ALS. And so I started doing that uh, every day. You know, um, I'm reading and decide that mitochondria are key, Uh, and that in all these little mouse and rat models, uh, that there are a variety of supplement studies. So I start experimenting, uh, translating these little mouse and rat doses to human-sized doses and begin experimenting.
1: What was one of the first supplements Obviously, this is in the context of the literature yeah. that you were reading for that. So, what was one of the first supplements you started experimenting with?
0: Creatine, carnitine, um, B twelve, of course, coenzyme Q, um, uh, high dose omega threes, uh, and oh, I think it was probably six months into this, there, there was no no change, and you know the skeptical uh, professor reared up her head said, ah, fooey on this, you've wasted enough money, and I quit everything. And, you know, a, a day later, I couldn't really get out of bed and go to work. And mind you, I, I was still working full-time in the midst of uh, all of this. The VA and the university had redesigned my job multiple times. So I, I um, didn't go to work. And next day, I, I, I could function even less well. And on the third day, my wife says, you know, honey, I think you ought to try these, take your so- vitamins again. <laughs> um, so I did. And the next morning, I could get up. And I thought, wow, wow, that is really interesting. So I I uh, waited two weeks and I stopped all my supplements. And again, I, I became exhausted, couldn't really function, waited three days, stirred them up, but I, again, could function. Now, And so my, I, I was thrilled. I was like, oh my God, I, I'm figuring stuff out that my neurologist is not telling me about, that my primary care doc is not telling me about. And maybe it's not going to recover me but that sure as heck is doing something. And that if I'm not taking it, I'm in much worse shape. So now I'm even more excited about um, reading the literature. And uh, the university has, uh, in one of their attempts to redesign my life to let me continue to work, they had uh, put me on the Institutional Review Board. Uh, And so in that role, I'm reviewing uh, human studies to be sure that they're uh, being conducted ethically and safely. So I tell the IRB, give me any study having to do with the brain. I'll be happy to review it. And so I'm-
1: And these were studies that the university was doing themselves? Correct.
0: That the university, you know, they had a PI, a principal investigator uh, there. And so be- now I- I'm reading uh, the neurodegenerative research, basic science, and uh, the mouse studies. Now I'm reading the human studies uh, related to any kind of brain stuff and I'm getting more and more comfortable reading uh, the research. And so I'm, I am also getting more confident going to my primary care doc and saying, we're going to add this. Uh, and my primary care doc and neurologist were uh, willing to uh, uh, run the uh, drug list against the supplements that I was adding to be sure that I wasn't inadvertently creating harm. Uh, and what I observed was I was slowing the rate of my decline. I was certainly not getting stronger. I was slowing my, the rate of my decline. You know, and the other thing that we should step back is, before I'd hit the wheelchair, um, two years into my diagnosis, my Cleveland Clinic docs had mentioned the work of Lauren Cordain in the paleo diet. And I'd, I read his book um, and his papers, uh, and this was a big deal because I'd been a vegetarian for 20 years. Being sort of the rebellious farm kid, I quit I, uh, eating meat. And I decided that the, uh, there was a rationale that seemed reasonable. So I, after a lot of prayer and meditation, went back to eating meat. And then of course the next year, and so I gave up all grain, all legumes, all dairy. This was like a phenomenally big change. But, you know, it's still a very uh, low-fat vegetarian diet. Um, lots of whole, whole grain, wheat, uh, and legumes, uh, and some vegetables, uh, but I continued to, head, to go downhill. So, I, then the next year I needed the wheelchair, and then more aggressive chemotherapy. So I'm still on the low fat. Uh, I, I had I had abandoned the low fat diet. I was on the paleo diet. I'm adding supplements. I'm still going downhill, but it does seem to be slower with the addition of the supplements. And
1: so let's z- zoom back. To where you were talking about where yeah. you notice the difference and you were doing something that a lot of functional medicine doctors teach their patients which is that sometimes you just have to try things you have to be a guinea pig and balance out the risk versus the rewards and when things are safe and there's not a lot of downside you actually do a challenge experiment and see do you notice something and mm-hmm. so this is what you were doing firsthand you had the support
0: of my of, primary care of
1: your primary care doctor
0: Right. You no, know, I, I as I was Once I got into like, okay, I'm going to do everything I can. I'm reading um, uh, on the internet. I'm reading PubMed. And if I found an article on the internet, my uh, criteria was, if they don't have any links to PubMed articles, I threw it away. If they had links to PubMed articles, I'd read the PubMed article. I didn't, I didn't really care for what was on the internet, other than this was a way to get me into a new way of thinking about what to tr- look at in PubMed. Uh, and so I was very careful that I wanted to have science behind my interventions, uh, a mechanism that made sense to me, that was uh, at least plausible. Then I'd have to look at, okay, um, were there any uh, drug interactions with the medications that I was on? Uh, were there supplement supplement interactions? And that gets to be sort of complicated, uh, but fortunately, because of my uh, academic role at the university, there's some databases that I could uh, do, that, uh, do those cross-checks with talk to my primary care doc uh, and get them uh, to agree and sign off on it. Uh, and so, Can I ask
1: you one question about yeah. that? Do you think that your primary care doctors were more open-minded because you were coming to the table with all the research? I mean, yes. there's plenty of people that come yes, absolutely. and want to talk about things, but then sometimes feel shut down or don't feel like they well, have a doctor that's willing to kind of explore with them because they may not be trained like you are.
0: Correct. So it helped that uh, I'm I'm seeing a, a academic partner, a colleague, um, and it helped that I brought in uh, the paper, and then I would just highlight uh, very succinctly the key point from the paper as to why I thought this was a reasonable thing to consider, and that had already. And then I, then once I began to uh, do the. Uh, cross-check on drug-drug interactions. So I had to make it as easy as possible for my primary care doc. I didn't, I didn't want to burden her.
1: Did you ever go against them? And they said, well, we don't think this is a good idea, or I wouldn't do this. And you said, well, I've actually kind of made up my mind and I've looked at everything oh, oh and yeah, I feel good about it. Well, did that happen often?
0: No, actually, I, I, and eventually I, I quit checking with my primary care doc because as <laughs> I, I get more comfortable with uh, knowing how to run the uh, search uh, myself, Yes. Uh, I just would inform her, like every when I went to see her every six months. Say, okay, these are the new things that I'm doing. Yeah, and just say okay, and to record it. So continue the story from there. <laughs> so you know, by by the summer of oh seven, my uh, face pain is it, it has been re- getting relentlessly worse for twenty seven years, uh, and w- when it turns on. I have to go to the pain clinic. I have to get uh, multiple uh, injections, which is really quite horrific. So you have these jolts of electrical face pain. Uh, and it's, it's worse than getting a C-section under local, which, by the way, I have had. It's worse than uh, broken bones. Hmm. It, it is absolutely the worst pain I've ever felt. And while that's happening, to get the uh, pain injections, they have to palpate my, my scalp to get the landmarks, which trigger those jolts. I have to hold still while then they do the, uh, the mm. injection. Uh, and then I would also end up going in for a, a high-dose IV solumedrol. And in the summer of 07, uh, I'd had episode turn on. Uh, I'd gone in for a pain injection. Um, i would gone in for IV solumedrol. Uh, normally, you get three doses of high-dose IV solumedrol. That turns off microglia activation, it took five days to turn off my pain. Uh, and um, daily injection, uh, local injections to turn off the pain. And by the way, I'm on the highest dose of gabapentin that you can take without being toxic. So, and I have clearly seen in the 27 years that I've had the trigeminal neuralgia, that this is getting relentlessly more difficult to turn off, more frequent, more severe. At times when the pain uh, uh, turns on, and I make it a little tearful here, so if you guys could uh, get some tissues for me. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. When when the uh, pain turns on, uh, light triggers the pain, dark triggers the pain, swallowing can trigger the pain, talking can trigger the pain. Touch by my kids can trigger the pain. Uh, There has been occasions where the pain uh, jolt turns on and the world becomes white uh, because all of my sensory input is overwhelmed by uh, this pain input. So I'm thinking, you know, uh, if this gets to the point where I can't swallow anymore, there's no feeding tube. I'm I'm not going to consent to a feeding tube. Hmm. And so... It's like, okay, there's there's the uh, final solution. That um, was certainly on my mind in the summer of 07. But on the other hand, you know, I have these two young kids who are uh, getting uh, uh, their adolescence. Uh, they can certainly see that I'm struggling, but I'm going to work. I do not miss work other than when my pain is turned on and I have to go get my uh, injections and uh, take the solumidrol. Um I'm beginning to have brain fog. Uh, and so uh, it was that summer that my chief of staff uh, pulls me in to say that he's going to reassign me to the traumatic brain injury clinic. There won't be any residents in that clinic. I'll be seeing patients uh, uh, along with the uh, physical medicine rehab doc, the uh, neuropsychologist, the psychiatrist, I'll be doing the primary care uh, intake uh, for these patients. And he describes the job, and I'm thinking, there's no way I can do that job physically. And he Mm -hmm. knows it. But what he's doing is uh, letting me know that the VA's done redesigning my job. So I tell my wife, and goes, yep, so um, when I have to start this new job in January, um, I'll either be able to do that job, or I can't, and then I'll finally have to apply for medical disability. So I'm uh, having to be uh, stoic, yeah, as stoic as I can. Um, but, you know, God works in mysterious ways. Hmm. Because it was two weeks later that I um, discovered electrical stimulation uh, in a study that I was reviewing uh, by Rich Shields, where he was using electrical stimulation of muscles for uh, patients who had a, a uh, traumatic spinal cord injury. And I thought they wanted to extend the study because people didn't want to quit because they had such an improved quality of life. Now, they still couldn't walk, but it was reducing the harm of inactivity, and it really improved their quality of life. So I thought, well, I wonder if that might help me. So I do a quick search. There's only 212 articles. It doesn't take that long to read them. You just scan the abstracts and read uh, the relevant ones. Uh, And I decided I want to do this.
1: And so the electrical, can you explain what it is, the stimulation?
0: so electrical stimulation of muscles, you put uh, electrodes over the muscle on the skin. And similar to what like a chiropractor might use when they're doing electrical stim? Um, And the chiropractors use it primarily for uh, uh, pain control. Mm -hmm. This is to force the muscle to contract. So you have to put it in slightly different location. It augments the uh, contraction of the muscle. So if you're paralyzed, it's really good because now your muscles are still being used. If you're not paralyzed but you're weak, it lets you get a more effective uh, workout. So in the, in the end, I get my physical therapist to let me add this to my regimen. Because uh, mind you, I was still working out a tiny little itsy-bitsy little 10-minute mat exercise before going to work, but now I added e during the workout. And so I was able to get a, a more effective workout. Uh, And also, it just felt incredibly energizing. And uh, uh, Dave said, it's probably the endorphins. And now the research also tells me it's also uh, releasing nerve growth factors and muscle growth factors. So this was things that my brain had not been able to see for a long time because of uh, how um, inactive had been forced to be debilitated by my illness. So this was just doing really great things for my mood uh, and my brain. Uh, and then uh, two weeks after that, I discovered uh, the Institute for Functional Medicine. Uh, How?
1: How did you, you find know, out? I, don't,
0: I was sort of doing an internet search, and it popped up, came up to my browser. And I'm reading this, and I'm looking at it. It's like, wow, this is pretty interesting. And they were talking about mitochondria. They had this uh, course, a uh, uh, neuroprotection course. And I read through the syllabus, and I thought, yep, that's definitely what I want. So I uh, ordered that course, uh, and that was the audio-synced PowerPoints. Uh, Jay Lombard uh, and Catherine Wilner were the two neurologists that uh, led that course. Uh, So I'm going through it, and of course, I'm having some brain fog, so I'm having to go through the lectures multiple times. Um, And so I have a longer list of supplements, much longer list, actually. Um, and I, I'm doing the E-STEM, I'm maybe a, a tiny bit stronger, maybe. Uh, my uh, pain is a, a little less. But then I had this really big aha moment. Like, what if I take this uh, list of things I'm taking in supplement form and I figure out where they're at in the food supply? And I restructure my paleo diet to stress those particular nutrients. That food's probably a lot more complicated than supplements. That if I reorganize my diet, maybe I'd get some some other things that'd be good for me. So I uh, go ask my uh, dietitian friends. Uh, I, I take in my list of nutrients, and they throw up their hands and say, like, you know, we, we need a, a a dietetic intern to help you. I I. I I don't know. So then I go over to the um, uh, health sciences library and talk to librarians, and they aren't really that helpful either. And then I go back to Google, and I discover the Linus Pauling uh, Institute on Micronutrients. And that's a gold mine. So now I have the food sources for all these key nutrients. And I have these list of foods I'm going to start emphasizing in my diet. Now mind you've already been meticulously gluten-free, dairy-free because I'm doing the AIP protocol uh, per um, uh, Dr. Cordain. But now, rather than just focusing on what to not eat, now I'm focusing on what I have to eat. I, and
1: in that period of time that you were going dairy-free and gluten-free, just like with the original supplements, I know there's a lot of different things that are going on. Did you notice that that improved things
0: not at all. Slightly. Not at all. Not, not at all. Not at all. And so you might ask, so why did I stay with it? I figured like, well, you know, my brain was... I, I clearly had been ill for quite a while. I clearly had a very aggressive disease. I did not know how long it would take um, for, for things to repair. At least I was doing something. So, yeah. yeah, you know, I wanted to be doing something. And so I'd stayed with it. I had had supplements. And I wasn't getting stronger with my supplements, but I did figure out I was uh, better with them than without them, and it was slowing my decline. Right. And so, March, uh, pardon me, December 26th, I started this new way of eating. We had salmon, we had a big kale salad, uh, we had a lot of garlic in it, we had some ginger in it, uh, we had uh, berries, although I don't quite remember which berries that was. Um, And then we uh, made some other vegetables, uh, probably cauliflower.
1: All reverse engineered from you looking at that database database. of micronutrients. What were some of the examples of like some of the key things? I mean, you just mentioned some, but what were some examples to compare and contrast that were not really in your diet even though you were gluten-free?
0: So I I wasn't eating liver. You know, so I was back, by God I was gonna have liver once or twice a week. Um, I also wanna be sure I was having heart. Um, I uh, was much more meticulous about having only uh, organic food, only uh, wild-caught, um, uh, or, uh, wild-caught fish or uh, grass-fed, grass-finished meat. Uh, and uh, if it was not uh, organic, uh, I was not going to eat it.
1: So in a way, to, to zoom out a little bit big picture, because diet is so central as part of your protocol, even though you were doing paleo before, it was primarily what to meats not from what's eat and also meats from sort of muscle proteins instead yeah, it was, of looking it was muscle at
0: muscle protein. Uh, it wasn't organ focused. meats. It wasn't organ meats. Uh, it wasn't bone broth. Um, you know, it, and in uh, retrospect, when, uh, when I look back at my youth, I'd had uh, a lot of tonsillitis. Uh, age three, tonsils out. Age four, uh, probably had a lot of antibiotics. Uh, yeast overgrowth and dysbiosis, uh, leaky gut, uh, severe gluten sensitivity, uh, and that although I'd been gluten-free, dairy-free, I probably had not healed my leaky gut. Right.
1: So a lot of different foods would trigger that.
0: Correct. So when uh, I uh, added the organ meat uh, and the bone broth, Uh, likely I healed that leaky gut now the other other thing uh, some other really interesting observations uh, when I started uh, adding all this kale and uh, cooked greens I discovered I had this uh, incredible craving of cooked greens uh, and greens so when people uh, get shocked they talk like nine cups of vegetables like Terry how how can you possibly do nine cups which is the
1: recommendation inside of your protocol we haven't gotten into yet but it's like It's a big emphasis on like nine cups of vegetables every day.
0: Yeah. You know, it's a way of thinking uh, about merging the best parts of the Mediterranean diet and the paleo diet. So you end up with something that that looks uh, a bit like the uh, Walls diet. Um, But the nine cups is actually much less than what I was doing. I was probably having nine cups of greens plus uh, the additional vegetables. Um, And when I became well enough that I was traveling, uh, Drew and I couldn't get that huge volume of vegetables, within 24 hours my energy would start tanking, my mental clarity would start tank, tanking. Now, the, the science has sort of caught up, or I've discovered the science more, that um, vitamin K uh, turns out to have a huge role in myelin, in myelin repair, in brain stem cells.
1: And for those listeners on the podcast that aren't familiar with the role that myelin plays in the body, what can you explain that?
0: Oh, sure. So um, the myelin is the fat wrapper around the wiring between brain cells. So if you have a nice uh, thick coating of myelin, the transmission is fast uh, and efficient. When the myelin breaks down um, and it can't be repaired well, then the transmission is slow and spotty you're more likely to have uh, weakness, more likely to have sensory disturbance. So it, now in retrospect, I would say that my intense craving for greens, once I began eating them and realized I, I could not get enough, um, was probably uh, reflecting that when I had all those greens, the bacteria in my um, small intestine could help metabolize that into uh, K2, which would then be absorbed in my ileum, which would then go to my liver to be metabolized to K2 MK4, which could then go up to my brain and uh, help support the oligodendrocyte precursor cells that help uh, make the uh, myelin. So sort of a long sequence there. Uh, So it was just uh, phenomenal, uh, the benefits of having all those grains.
1: So you discovered the Institute of Functional Medicine, you're going even further, there's this emphasis on additional things of focusing what to eat, not just what not to eat. Mm -hmm. And if I could zoom out for a second, were you also getting a better understanding of what potentially were some of the factors that led to the buildup of having an autoimmune disease?
0: Sure, Um, so, as I went through the neuroprotection course, that was really focused on mitochondria and the brain. Uh, and then uh, it wasn't actually until I recovered quite remarkably, and I'm going through more uh, IFM courses, that I'm really deepening my uh, understanding of the autoimmune process.
1: And for anybody that's not familiar, we've mentioned it many times before, but the I- IFM is the Institute of Functional Medicine. They're a nonprofit that educates practitioners all around the world. Many mm-hmm. of them are physicians or practitioners like yourself who have gotten sick at some point in time, like Dr. Hyman and many others.
0: That's how nearly all of us get get to uh,
1: the Institute. There's this new generation of people who are coming in, like my brother-in-law who's a cardiologist in in, uh, San Diego, who are not sick because now there's so many authors like yourself who are teaching them, it's like young med students and individuals who are getting into it, but the first wave was literally doctors who were looking for an answer, could not find the answer or found a piece of the answer, got referred to IFM, and then began their additional training into the root factors that actually Mm cause health and cause disease. correct, correct. Almost like a med school, you know, like a second phase of it.
0: So my my undergraduate degree is a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Studio Art Painting. Um, And so I decided I was gonna starve as an artist and went back, picked up my science and applied to medical school, got in. Basic science was really hard, or way harder for me than many of my colleagues. I was so thrilled to be done with uh, biochemistry and physiology, and so thrilled to discover it again uh, when I became ill and realized that that was going to be the key to my recovery. And so uh, it, it gives me a lot of smiles now uh, and laughter to realize uh, I just love reading about biochemistry and physiology now and uh, immunology, neuroimmunology, because uh, those certainly were the keys to my recovery.
1: So, you know, we're following this story, and just like everybody's listening so intentfully, let's continue on on the story.
0: Okay, so December 26th, I start this new way of eating. You know, in January begins, I'm going to go off to this uh, new clinic that I have to be in, the traumatic brain injury clinic. And I'm, you know, assuming I can't do that job. It's going to be more physically demanding than what I can do. Uh, the first week, you know, it's the middle of January. Now I, I'm there and I'm I've just been watching my partners do these exams. Third week of January. Okay, Terry, time for you to do the exams. So I'm uh, into three weeks of eating this way, I'm about ready to start my fourth week. I start seeing the patients. And you know, at the end of the first day, I'm like, well, that wasn't too bad. At the end of the week, I'm like, I, th- I can do this. And I realize something's happening. And uh, so it's with breathtaking speed I'm beginning to realize, you know, my, my, my thinking's more clear. And then I realize, you know, my energy's better. And then I realize I don't have to sit in the zero-gravity chair at home to have supper. I, I can sit in my other desk chair. I can, I can, I can sit upright. And then um, I think it was about three months. I have a a piece of mail that I should uh, take down to the mailbox. Uh, it's probably about a oh the equivalent of, a, of about uh, half a block. I haven't done this for years at the VA. I pick up my uh, walking sticks. I put the letter in my pocket, and I walk to the mailbox, and I mail that letter. My colleagues see me in the hallway, and go like, "Oh my God, Dr. Walls, you're walking." <laughs> um. And then I start walking. I leave my uh, wheelchair in the corner. I um, I have a scooter. Uh, I take my wheelchair home, park that. Uh, and then the garage. I have my uh, uh, a scooter. I leave that in my office, but I'm not really using that. Uh, six months into all this, no, it's not quite six months. Maybe uh, four months, five months into this, um, my every two year follow up with uh, my chair of internal medicine is due, and now that's a little bigger walk than just around the hospital. It's down a hill, up a hill. You know, it's maybe like half mile. That's clearly too far. So I get in my scooter. I'm driving my scooter over, and I'm going up the hill. And you hear this motor go. Oh, shit! So I get out. That's okay. What if I just walk next to it? So I get a few more feet, and that stops again. Then I uh, disengage the drive shaft, and I push it up the hill. And then I, you know, get to the door and the. Um, uh, attended, offers to call me the, the patient mobile. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm already late to see the chair of medicine. I can't. How long, how, how long am I going to have to wait? So it's, like, oh, it's about half an hour. Like, oh, I can't do that. So just watch my scooter. And I finished the way walking, getting to my chairman's office. The secretary is quite perturbed because now I am late. Uh, and uh, they usher me into the chairman's office. And I apologize to him that my scooter died on the way over. He goes, oh, you had to wait for the patient mobile? I said, no, no, no. I, I pushed it up the hill and I walked over. Now, he hadn't seen me in about nine months.
1: The last time I had seen you, you were in a wheelchair. I
0: was in a wheelchair and I looked really bad. Um, so I, I um, explained to him, I said, oh, so you must be taking Tysabria. I said, well, no, actually, I'm not. Actually, I'm off all my disease-modifying drugs with my neurologist's approval. I'm just using diet and lifestyle. Uh, and so I showed him my e device, uh, told him my story, talked about what I was doing. And he, he's a rheumatologist, by the way. He says, Terry, this is so important. Your job for this year is to get a case report written up. Mm. I said, on myself, I said, yes. Uh, work with your treating physician, your treating medical team, you get this written up. This is so important. People do not recover from progressive MS. Mm. So uh, I did that, uh, and then... Um, he would call me back uh, uh, when I had that done. I thought I was done. He goes, no, no, no we're going to have you do a safety and feasibility study. So he would head, head me down that path. Uh, and then uh, a couple months later on on Mother's Day, I, um, we had a, a family meeting because I, I wanted to ride my bike. It was the first time in six years. Uh, and fortunately for me, the family, uh, Jackie said that, I could. Um, I could try anyway. I should have my son jog on the left. My daughter would jog on the right. She would follow up on the bike. And I was able to bike. And, of course, that felt like um, really quite miraculous because that was something I completely accepted uh, would never happen again. And uh, so uh, when when that happened, um, certainly how I understood disease and health was very different. Uh, the way I practiced medicine would be different. Uh, and actually it was shortly after that that my chairman called me back and said, um, I want you to do a safety and feasibility trial. We're going to have you change the research that you do.
1: Incredible. And I'm sure even for in addition to the magnitude for yourself, just the magnitude for your family witnessing all this, for your partner, Oh, we're for all your crying. Kids.
0: <laughs> we're all crying, we're all crying a lot.
1: Yeah. And the joy of that, because anybody who knows somebody with, uh, how would you rank, I mean, how would you rank the severity of MS and progressive MS compared to like other autoimmune diseases? Uh, diseases in terms of how much it affects the mobility of the body, body and how quickly sort of the decline is?
0: Well, uh, typically, um, you know, everyone is unique and it depends on what part of your body uh, is impacted. I, I got into really quite profound disability very quickly. It, is that typical, no, atypical? No, no. Well, I, was, I had much, much more aggressive. Yeah. Uh, for the newly diagnosed person, Within 10 years, one-third will have some kind of gait impairment, needing a cane, walker, or wheelchair. So within three years, I needed a wheelchair. Within seven years, I could not sit up like you are in in this chair. I I was unable to sit uh, up in a regular chair. I had to have a zero-gravity chair or be in bed. By a zero-gravity chair, I mean uh, one that lets me lie back so my knees are higher than my nose. Um, and I was beginning to have uh, brain fog. There's a lot more recognition that um, impaired thinking uh, begins to accrue. Uh, anxiety and depression can begin to accrue. Now, uh, there's a lot of fortunate things. My hands were still working well. And even though I've had uh, optic neuritis, and there's uh, clearly evidence of optic neuritis in both eyes, uh, my vision is still uh, really quite good. But
1: So I want to zoom out because people have heard the term MS and we'll come back to your story, but I want to do a little bit of a, what, when you were a med student and you were learning about autoimmune conditions and diseases like MS, what were you taught about the fundamental reason that they happen inside the body? <laughs> and then yeah. as that journey continued, and your research continued, and you connected with IFM, how did that understanding grow further from there?
0: So the conventional uh, uh, way that people are taught about autoimmune issues is that your immune cells begin attacking uh, otherwise healthy tissues. We don't know why. Uh, There appears to be some genetic risk factor, maybe an infection of some type, maybe, and a host of other unknown environmental factors. Uh, because in twin studies, you are at slightly increased risk if your twin or a sibling uh, has an autoimmune condition, but you don't necessarily have it. Even if you have two parents or an identical twin with an autoimmune condition, there's still a greater probability that you will not have it. So these other factors, but no one ever talked about know diet quality stress or sleep or exercise they just said take the disease modifying drugs uh
1: there's no cure no cure it's really just focused on treatment and the primary intervention for treatment is maybe some drugs phys- primary drugs maybe some physical therapy depending on what people you know, are that,
0: at. You know and ironically enough i had to refer myself to physical therapy uh, because i was like I mean, I'm a former athlete, so I knew exercise would be really important, and I kept sending myself to physical therapy to be sure I was doing as much exercise and uh, as optimally as I could.
1: So primarily Um, drugs.
0: Primarily drugs. And the drugs are to uh, block the immune cell function. Now, To suppress the immune system. To suppress the immune cells so they can't attack you. And mind you, I was happy to take those drugs because I wanted to treat my disease aggressively, and so I was uh, very willing to do all of that. Uh, But now I I also, with my functional medicine understanding and and my own uh, clinical experience and my reading the science, we need our immune cells to repair and maintain our bodies. If I want to repair the myelin damage that's occurring, I need my immune cells to go in, mop up the damage, and supervise the repair. When you take uh, immune suppressants, you block the uh, repair that your brain's been attempting to do all of this time.
1: So in traditional medical literature and the approach that doctors are taught, that we need to bring in these immune suppressing du- drugs, because if it's the immune system that's attacking our body, that's causing this degradation, we have to suppress that. But in that process, we also end up suppressing our general immune system, which is important for all sorts of functions inside the body.
0: Correct. So we need our immune cells to maintain, repair all of our function um, without that you have accelerated aging, increased vulnerability to infection, increased vulnerability to cancers, which are of course increased when you're taking immune suppressing drugs, you have a higher rate of infection and cancers, and you'll have accelerated uh, aging. Uh, And no one is talking to you about general wellness, no one's talking to you about, okay, so it's it's a mix of genetics, unknown environmental factors, so what we ought to have you do is, let's have you do all of the known... And, and there's thousands of studies that will tell us what are the diet and lifestyle factors associated with improved health outcomes. We could have just said, you know, what, we don't know, so let's have you do all these diet and lifestyle factors that we can that are associated with improved health. Which is basically what I was doing uh, once I started reading the basic science myself. It's like, okay, i got to do everything I can. Uh, and so, you know, in the summer of 7 I'm like, okay, I'm really on the knife's edge of catastrophe here. I have to do everything. So I went back to meditation. I was convincing my uh, physical therapist to add E-stem to uh, get even more out of my exercise. I was reading the basic science and, you know, zeroing in on nutrition as well as I could. Then I had that big aha: like, I shouldn't be relying just on supplements. I should be structuring my diet as maximally nutrient dense as I can using this template of nutrients as the most important ones that my brain needs.
1: So you gave us the, the typical thinking, and where did the understanding of functional medicine, your own research, like what, what dots did that connect for you? Like if you would bring in a new distinction that was there, that we're gonna, you know, you, you change your diet, you add in these supplements, you know, you're addressing some root systems. Correct. What were the dots that that connected for you?
0: Well, um, so, Up until then, I was doing this sort of uh, PubMed article by PubMed article by PubMed article. But with functional medicine, I now had a framework to organize my thinking. Uh, And so a much more comprehensive approach that validated, yes, make time to do your daily meditation. You need to uh, prioritize that. I um, certainly reinforced the power of exercise and then all the molecular pathways that exercise uh, was benefiting. Um, And then uh, as I was getting to the root cause and thinking back uh, that I needed to address (coughs) mitochondrial function, because that's what I was really zeroed in on, uh, was I I have to support those uh, mitochondria and detox pathways. I would eventually realize that the microbiome is really uh, a big thing that I was supporting with all of those uh, vegetables, all of that fiber, uh, and that increased uh, diversity, and then uh, uh, spending more time stressing uh, the fermented vegetables as well. So I, I would continue to refine things over the next year, but it, it was the framework, the more comprehensive look at what I was doing, and you know, steadily growing confidence that I am onto something. And then when I got onto my bike, I'm like, who knows how much recovery is possible? Clearly, the the present understanding of multiple sclerosis is incorrect, is incomplete. The present understanding of secondary progressive multiple sclerosis is incomplete. Uh, And that... um, I mean, I think, well, maybe jogging will be possible. Uh, Biking, apparently, is, again. And so... The, the the possibilities, and then you know in the meantime in my traumatic brain injury clinic you know when I first got assigned to that clinic, the the treatment was, well we'll just give you psych drugs to control your rage, and we'll just see what happens. And then I come to the clinic, i like, to all these poor uh, men and ladies who were uh, uh, having immense suffering, I'm like, there's a lot we can do. I'm going to teach you how to eat. I'm going to talk about exercising. We're going to talk about meditation, and you're going to get your life uh, turned around and we started turning people's lives around. At first, my colleagues were very, very unhappy with uh, my approach. And what do you think
1: was the primary thing that came up for them? That you're breaking the mold, and now other patients are asking them questions? Or, you know, I'm sure well, there's a, co- a bunch of factors, but what were you noticing from them?
0: Uh, well, the first thing, I, uh, I got called to the chief of staff's office. And he said, you know, Terry, people, what are you doing? People are complaining. <laughs> Um, and so, patients t- or other doctors? Other docs. No, patients were loving. Patients were thrilled. They. Um, so, I ended up having to um, go meet with a director for the complementary alternative medicine, who taught me how to uh, talk about this more precisely in my clinical notes and in the public. So I was careful to not overstate my claims to say that I'm just improving cellular physiology, watching for a reduced need for medication uh, so we don't end up with you being over-medicated if your cells improve their function. Uh, so that I had to learn how to speak uh, carefully.
1: They're teaching you how to be more politically correct.
0: Absolutely, but <laughs> but um, it, it is important to maintain those relationships with your colleagues. Of course, your team. To, and to help patients understand that, no, I'm not curing them, but I'm let, letting them uh, treat their cells in a more effective way, and their cells are rebuilding them by correctly made molecule by correctly made molecule. And as that happens, their need for blood pressure meds goes down. Their need for blood sugar meds goes down. Their need for pain meds goes down. And everyone starts being less irritable. And they start getting along a whole lot better with their colleagues at work and their family.
1: Similar to your situation, if I could interject, you never say that you're Cured from MS. Oh, I'm never, you just say that oh, your not. symptoms have been reduced to such a big degree, and your body function, correct, has returned.
0: Now, oh, exactly. If I get exposed uh, to gluten, dairy, or eggs, my face pain will turn on. Or you know, if I have too much stress, if I take too many flights uh, in a month, so my toxin load is too great, my face pain will turn on. So uh, I manage my disease i always have those that genetic vulnerability. Um, but as long as I do all of my self cares, I do very, very well.
1: Do you use the word recovery, that you've recovered from MS, that you, like what's the word that you use to describe the transformation that you've had?
0: So I have, certainly have recovered um, a, a great deal of function. The question is, uh, am I a normal 64-year-old? My kids will say, mom, you'll never be normal. And I think that's true. But when I saw my neurologist uh, last week, so let's sort of take stock of where you're at. So what's the most rigorous athletic thing you can do? So, okay, how about I'll start doing push-ups for you? We'll see how, and so I did 10 push-ups for my toes. So, okay, well, that's pretty good. You can stop now. Uh, and I said, okay, uh, how about vertical leaps? How many? So, so I did 10 vertical leaps. So, okay, you can stop now. So, okay, I'll stand on one foot. So after a minute, said, okay, why want you you stop now? I, I think we clearly have established that you're in excellent shape. I don't know what a normal 64-year-old American woman could do in terms of push-ups, but probably not 10, and I bet most of them can't do 10 vertical leaps, and they probably can't stand on one foot uh, for longer than a minute. Um, but I, I'm not as athletic as you know, I... you I had hoped when I was uh, a young athlete. I was hoped to be running marathons, uh, It'd be the white-haired grandmother uh, running marathons, passing the youngsters. So I, I'm not quite up to that yet, but I'm still hopeful.
1: <laughs> I'm still hopeful. Yeah. So we want to just show this photo. It was one of those moments when you were biking, and then together you have the before and after photo, and now, individuals can see.
0: It, it, what is remarkable about that is, so in 2007, I could not sit up in a regular chair. I have brain fog. Uh, and I have um, severe pain. One year later, I'm able to do an 18.5 mile bike ride. My brain fog is gone, my pain is gone. As long as I continue to follow my self cares, I'm doing very well, I continue to get stronger. If my self cares get derailed, my pain comes back.
1: And this is the journey that you wrote about in your book, The -hmm. Walls Protocol. Which dives into much of the story that we talked about over here, mm-hmm. how it happened, starting first with those face pains that you had early in medical school from stress and other factors that were going on in life yes. and the factors that you grew up with as an you know, as a child, antibiotic exposure, dietary, other things like that. Um, and in addition to your story and your recovery process, a detailed step-by-step protocol that you followed but that can be helpful not just for patients with the same diagnosis of progressive MS but potentially for other Mm -hmm. autoimmune diseases. In fact you started getting a lot of people writing in saying that they were doing your protocol for things like Parkinson's. Parkinson's. What are some um, other examples of chronic diseases or conditions that people had that they were noticing that they were getting significantly better or not declining as fast when they were following your walls protocol?
0: So um, other autoimmune problems, things like uh, systemic lupus, uh, fibromyalgia, uh, psoriatic arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, um, uh, autoimmune thyroid disease. Uh, Then uh, we also have other neurologic issues like Parkinson's. Uh, mental health issues, anxiety, depression, uh, bipolar, uh, obsessive-compulsive disorder. Uh, Then we've had um, uh, myasthenia, uh, uh, diabetes, obesity, uh, heart disease, uh, chronic pain. Uh, You know, the the VA became so impressed with the work that I was doing in the traumatic brain injury clinic and in the primary care clinic, uh, they asked me to create a a clinic that was devoted to doing medicine the way I wanted to do it, and we called it the Therapeutic Lifestyle Clinic. Uh, and I went to the pain clinic, I went to primary care, and I said, you know, give me your most challenging patients, but what they need to know, they're not getting drugs for me. We're just going to do diet and lifestyle. Uh, and so the most common uh, diagnoses or issues that I was helping people with were pain, brain fog, uh, and uh, mood issues. Uh, And they'd come with a variety of diagnoses. It might be old war injuries. It might be uh, back pain, an autoimmune problem, mental health problem, obesity, diabetes. But the most common symptom that people were were troubled with uh, was pain, uh, brain fog, uh, some mood issues, Uh, and then of course their underlying disease states. And we'd put them basically on the walls protocol. Uh, I would personalize it uh, uh, to address their uh, issues. We had such success, I ended up having to uh, switch things over to a group classes because we had, I wanted to help as many people as possible, and we had uh, long waiting lines to get in. Uh, and the VA, because it has an electronic medical system, uh, was able to uh, monitor uh, blood pressure, uh, blood sugar uh, use, lab values, and, and saw that we were consistently improving blood pressure, improving blood sugars, needing fewer drugs. Um, it was it was really uh, very very satisfying
1: you know sometimes I've shared your story just I'm in conversation I have so many friends uh, family members that are uh, physicians or in research or in the medical system in some shape or form or I'm on vacation somewhere and I'm just chatting with somebody about the work that I do and or I come across somebody who has uh, ms and I'm talking about your story and Oftentimes when somebody is in the space of research or a physician, I can immediately see this sort of, you know, uh, not always, but often glance of, and then sometimes a comment of, well, there's no evidence The immediately the jump to, there's no evidence
0: to show
1: that that this actually works. And so who knows, this could be just her story. This could be anecdotal. And I think the thing that sometimes, well, first of all, you are working on a ton of research and there's research that's out (laughs) there. We're going to talk about that in a second, but I want to talk about the first part of your story is that I think sometimes people forget that the way that research gets funded, especially when it comes to lifestyle interventions, like the research that you're doing, is you shared your story.
0: You did a case study Mm -hmm. and that case study turned into the case series, case series. Turned into a feasibility trial. Feasibility t- trial. Turned into randomized controlled trial. Turned into randomized parallel group trial. Um, so, yes, th- there's a, a definite sequence. Um, it It is, you know, people, when I first recovered, my neurologist said, you know, Terry, I get so many calls. I, you know, I'm so glad you went to see uh, the Cleveland Clinic because... People keep accusing me of being incompetent, saying that you couldn't possibly have MS. And I get to say, no, no, she saw the best center in the country. Uh, So uh, she has MS. But then, of course, then we can say that you do prospective clinical trials and you've gotten uh, very nice results in others as well.
1: And I want to add one other element to it. You know, you're in this field, you're in this space where you have access to do these trials. Mm -hmm the support of the colleagues through you earning that support. But in addition to that, you also based the protocol on first, of course, your own experience, what you were noticing getting better or not. But that was also based on research that was out there. That's all science-based. That's all science-based, but you don't have to have a big clinical trial on MS not that that's not useful and we want that and that's what you're doing, to begin to make improvements and to see if you notice or a patient notice a difference. You might be working with a doctor who Mm -hmm. says, look, these are the pros and cons, this is what the research says, these are what the animal models show out there, this is what pathways it's linked to or the core issues that are there. I think it's worth trying.
0: And and what you always want to be doing is judging the uh, risk of the intervention uh, how risky is the intervention? So as I was doing things, I was you know assessing how, how uh, worrisome were these supplements. And so I was checking them always uh, against the safety data to verify that they were safe. And then I could make a decision how risky would it be to go back to a daily meditation. That's pretty safe. Um, how risky was it to do physical therapy every day? Well, I've been doing that for years uh, under... Uh, my therapist, uh, so that's pretty safe. Adding electrical stimulation that was under my therapist's direction, so that's pretty safe. Uh, redesigning my paleo diet to stress a more nutrient dense diet again, that's pretty safe. Um, a, a lot of the dietitians will say, you know, when you do a paleo diet, any diet that excludes uh, a, a whole food groups puts you at risk for nutrient deficiencies, and, and that would be terrible for you. Uh, so. We, when I, I uh, wrote these uh, analyses uh, to analyze our diet using rigorous uh, registered dietitian uh, uh, nutrient software, um, we published it in high impact registered dietitian uh, nutrition journals, analysis of the walls diet, and it's, no surprise, superior to the uh, U.S. governmental dietary guidelines uh, for many, many of the nutrients. Uh, and so we've uh, published that, and I uh, update that uh, in my book. Uh, so I, I think it's important for us to be skeptical. I think it's important for us to evaluate carefully these interventions, are they risky or not? And you can decide, uh, I want to wait for randomized double-blind controlled trials, or you can decide that vegetables are pretty safe, meditation is pretty safe, exercise is pretty safe, uh, supplements supervised by your personal physician uh, is pretty safe. Um, And and the other thing that's exciting, Drew, is when I first started talking about diet and exercise as critical to protecting your brain, the neurology community, that was back when my uh, TED Talk went viral in 2011, and when my book came out in 2014, they were very upset. Mm. They said, you know, diet has nothing to do with it. You know, you got a terrible disease, eat what you want. But now, you know, the science has caught up. The microbiome research has caught up. The epigenetics research has caught up. Um, And now the leading neuroscientists are saying, we have to preserve your brain. Even if you take disease-modifying drugs, you're at high risk of developing early cognitive decline, at high risk of having accelerated brain atrophy. You need to eat a nutrient-dense diet. You need to do a stress-reducing program. You need to do daily exercise. You should monitor your vitamin D level should know your homocysteine status and you know what it sounds like they read my book <laughs>
1: <laughs> the landscape of the conversation has changed, has in changed a way, a lot. yes those same researchers and physicians are thinking a lot more holistically because they understand Co- that every part of the body affects another part of the body and if we don't keep that in mind it's not enough to just look at what is this one drug doing to improve this one thing that we're looking at when it comes to this disease but what are the other aspects <laughs> so that leads me to the question of you know, you were sharing in your story that in addition to the things that you were focusing on adding, you also were off of those drugs that were yeah. given to you in the beginning. When, at what point in time, in the journey, uh, from the time that you were in a <laughs> wheelchair, were you off all of those medications?
0: So uh, in uh, 2007, I started all this stuff, I'm on Celcept, which is a disease-modifying drug. I'm recovering, I'm walking around, I, uh, in March, maybe it was the first week of April, I went to see my neurologist uh, and I told him that I wanted to go off the disease-modifying drugs. He goes, you know what, I, I think that's fine, Terry. I, well, first off, he, uh, he was stunned when he saw me walk into his office because the last time he'd seen me I'd been in the wheelchair looking really bad. Um, so he was thrilled. Uh, he got an MRI. He was so disappointed that my MRI had not changed. And then he said, you know, it was probably foolish to think that it would because those are really old lesions. So the thing is that your brain isn't shrinking, you don't have new lesions, uh, and yes, I've, we should still taper you and take you off those drugs. Uh, so we did, and I've been off uh, all disease-modifying drugs since uh, uh, the second week of April. I'm still on gabapentin, although now I'm on a, a very tiny dose. Uh, I've att- I've attempted to go entirely off the gabapentin, but my face pain comes back. Um, so I, I have scarred my spinal cord. Um, uh, so likely I, I will be on a very low dose gabapentin forever because when that pain comes on, it's so horrific that I'm just like taking uh, 400 milligrams of gabapentin for the rest of my life is like no big deal. I'm happy to do that.
1: And this brings up the larger point, which is that when people work with, even you're a physician, you were working with your doctors to oh, decide yeah. what medications were there, but I'm hearing, and I want to say it back to you, and you correct me if I'm wrong, that a big part of your recovery, in addition to the things that you were doing, was knowing when to get off the drugs in the right order.
0: Correct, correct. You know, a lot of people will reach out and say, I just discovered your protocol. I'm going to stop my drugs.
1: And that's the wrong
0: answer. That's absolutely the wrong answer. You implement the protocol, and you may, if you have great response, uh, have be able to have a future conversation, say, I'd like to taper and get off my drugs. We, we don't know what the appropriate time frame is. Yeah, uh,
1: It's based on every patient and every their page, process.
0: It, uh, and you want to, it depends on your disease. Um, do you have MS? Do you have lupus? Do you have fibromyalgia? Do you have inflammatory bowel disease? Um, so you need to be monitored for your disease activity. Uh, and then uh, things slowly tapered at the time that it's appropriate. And then you need to know that lifestyle your self cares are now your potent disease modifying drugs and if you let's say in two years you're feeling so great you think ah I don't need to do this anymore Uh, my I'm at my nephew's wedding um, and I want to have wedding cakes so I do and then I have a severe rebound flare your neurologist will say see I told you you can't stop the drugs Mm. and I would say see I told you you can't cheat Your lifestyle is your disease-modifying therapy. If you stop it, expect a rebound. Just like if you stop your potent disease-modifying drugs, you expect a rebound.
1: It's almost like uh, a colleague of mine used to say, a functional medicine practitioner, he would say, how strict you are is based on how sick you are. And so in some cases where people have very chronic autoimmune conditions, they really don't have the ability to return back to the way that they were eating before the symptoms got Never. really bad. Correct, correct, correct. So this just I, is just their new lifestyle, the way that they're living.
0: That's, that's the, way, the way you live. Um, A small
1: price to pay for regaining function, so, correct, brain correct. health and all of the things that you saw on your own journey.
0: So um, my kids, uh, one, one child uh, has, has made the observation that uh, migraines are gone as long as they follow the Wallace Protocol, migraines come roaring back if they um, go back to the standard American diet. And the other uh, doesn't, they feel a little more energetic when they follow the walls Protocol. Uh, it doesn't have a big impact on them. Uh, although even that child has said, you know, uh, um, they can tell they are migrating more in, uh, towards following the protocol more completely.
1: It's fantastic quick story that I'm going to jump around a little bit here. Yeah. And I want to talk about all the new things that you've incorporated based on what your community has shared with you, what mm-hmm. you've seen yourself that you've incorporated into the new version of the book that's out there. But talk to us about how you went from once being banned by the National <laughs> MS Society, right? One of the mm-hmm. main organizations when it comes to multiple sclerosis. How did you go from being banned by them to then receiving funding from them
0: well uh actually i'm very grateful that they did ban me uh because what does a
1: ban look like did you receive a plaque in the email well what i received was a a
0: notice from my chief of staff and uh from the chair of medicine to that i had appointments to go speak with them because i had to explain why i was banned and that's when i heard that people were complaining about me and to them to them And that's when I got the appointment with the uh, chief of the Complementary Alternative Medicine Clinic, uh, which was actually very helpful. I learned how to speak uh, more appropriately uh, in the public uh, and uh, in my medical record to be sure that I was telling people, we're trying to improve cellular physiology and that we want you to work closely with your personal physician uh, so that as as your cells work better and you need fewer medications, we can safely wean you away from drugs. So very helpful. Uh, And then uh, this is sort of like what happened with uh, the fellow named Barry Marshall, the guy who said H. pylori caused uh, stomach ulcers. You know, he had this theory in 1980, couldn't get his books, uh, his work published. He had to get published in uh, regional, very low impact, almost negative impact journals. Uh, And then he worked with a publicist uh, to get his um, an article about him published in the U.S. with a sensational headline, "Guinea Pig Doctor Cures Self of Stomach Ulcers Using Antibiotics," mm-hmm. uh, and that was published in uh, the Reader's Digest and in the National Enquirer, which then generated a huge public buzz. Then he started being able to get more funding for his research with, with philanthropic donors. Uh, More rigorous studies, which got into bigger publications. And 25 years later, the guy gets a Nobel Prize in medicine. And he's a millionaire because he's uh, created some patents around uh, the H. pylori theory. For me, you know, I have my recovery 2008, 2009. I finally get my uh, uh, studies underway in 2010. 2011, I have that TEDx talk that goes viral.
1: And can you share the title of that?
0: uh, Minding Your Mitochondria.
1: And you can see it in the show notes if you click below.
0: It's a great little talk. That goes viral. That gets me my book deal. Um, uh, and so that's getting published. I get uh, uh, a conversation with my chair of medicine and chair of and, uh, VA, making sure that I'm not overstating my claims. I'm very careful about uh, how I write that book so that uh, people are carefully guided to work closely with their physicians, not stop drugs. Work, you know, vegetables are pretty safe. Monitoring your vitamin D level's pretty safe. Meditation's pretty safe. Exercise supervised by a therapist, again, pretty safe. But work with your personal medical team as you do these things. Book becomes a bestseller. The uh, MS Society monitors their social media platform. And
1: this is, they're monitoring that, this is before the ban comes in or after? Oh, the ban the happened in 2009. Okay, and and so- Before my TED Talk. Yep. Yep. and before my research. Yeah, and the ban, just to, before we go to that point where they're monitoring social media, just curious, Oh, so what, what, what that did the ban, what it, did it mean, it, what and it how it did it come to you?
0: The local Iowa City chapter could not let me come speak to them. Okay, got it. And other chapters couldn't let me speak to them, but apparently some other chapters figured out how to go around that because I was speaking <laughs> uh, two chapters on uh, the uh, telephone and so I, I don't know how they got around it. I didn't ask. Uh, so some some local chapters figured out their, local, their own local workarounds.
1: And one more question about that because I think this is important in the process of doing things the right way and also that when you are onto something in any industry, whether it's the industry that you're in and you have an idea that's out there, you will get backlash.
0: You'll, you'll get pushback. And you know, actually, I'm really grateful that the Emma Society banned me because that led me to my uncomfortable conversations with my chair of medicine, uh, sure. VA chief of staff, that got me uh, educated on a uh, more prudent way of talking about all of this.
1: For sure, it was a big so part I'm, of so the growth was, of how it was to communicate of, it.
0: Part of my growth and development, for which I'm very grateful. So, so then they
1: were monitoring social media.
0: So, the, so my. Um, TED Talk comes out, my book comes out, it's a bestseller. They monitor social media to know what their constituents are talking about. And what happened in 2014? There was a sudden explosion of social media mentions about diet, lifestyle, the Walls Diet, the Walls Protocol, Dr. Terry Walls, that swamped all of the conversation about disease-modifying therapies combined. So in in uh, the summer of 2014 they decide they need to hold a wellness conference. And um, they track me down, get me on the phone to say, uh, we're having this wellness conference, we'd like you to come. With, and I'm like, well, I, I would come, but see, I'm a band speaker, and I don't think I could attend your conferences as a band speaker. So they were very apologetic, and they said, no, you're not banned." <laughs> and uh, we, we really would like you Did to come. Did put it in writing? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so uh, I came. And so they had 45 people who were scientists, 45 folks who were uh, patient advocates. So I was a twofer. And for the 45 patient advocates, they all had copies of my book. So I'm as we're registering there, I'm signing all these books. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm probably pissing people off, but you know, I'm, I'm going to sign these books. Uh, and uh, during that conversation... And they had uh, these presentations, and I saw the graph, which explained why I was there. That showed the social media um, mentions before my book came out and after my book came out. It was just mm. boom. I said so. It's apparent to us that our constituents want diet and lifestyle programming and <laughs> diet and lifestyle research. So we're that's why this meeting's uh, being convened. Then I kept advocating that. Uh, we we could agree that we don't know the role of gluten. We don't know the role of dairy. Um, but we could sh- surely all agree that sugar is bad and vegetables are good. And the neurology scientists, neuroscientists, were saying, there's no proof for that. <laughs> and so no that, proof for either. Or,
1: <clears throat> or we're saying specifically about sugar. There's or no vegetables. Okay, got it.
0: And so and, and so, so th- my response to that was, yes. uh, you know, I, I, I'm not uh, always socially the most skilled. So I I stood up. I said, well, if you guys can't be on the side of no to sugar, yes to vegetables, and you don't tell your constituents that, and your clinicians that, your constituents will think that you are only on the side of big pharma. Then I got a standing ovation from the 45 members of the audience that were patient advocates, and sort of stony silence from the neuroscientists. I thought, okay, this is not going well. I should probably behave better. Um, and then we had we broke out into the diet group, and I kept saying, if, if you're going to do dietary research, you have to reconstitute the people who are reviewing these studies, because based on the comments I'm getting back from my proposals to you, you guys, your reviewers know nothing about doing dietary intervention studies.
1: And just like the neuroscientist who was in the audience who had shared that comment, I've heard Jeffrey Bland say this before. You know, he's considered one of the god. for those that are listening, he was instrumental in setting up the Institute of Functional Medicine, is considered one of the godfathers of functional medicine. Really incredible guy. I've heard him say is that your lack of awareness is not an absence of evidence that's out there. <laughs> so this individual is saying, there's no proof for that. There's no proof that sugar's bad and vegetables are good. That individual, who I'm guessing was probably a little bit of like a Older, you know, not a young yeah. doctor, a little bit older.
0: Actually, they were quite young. Oh, they were? Okay, but, you know, so but that's they, my they, own they, stereotype they, of the they, situation. They, they grew up in the um, animal model. They grew up in the, well, will steadily uh, processes one biochemical pathway at a time. Got it. Life is much more complicated than that.
1: Life is so much more complicated.
0: Now, to, to the MS Society's credit, yes. uh, we had this little banquet, uh, several internal folks came by and said, Terry, we are so rooting for you. Uh, we so appreciate what you're uh, doing, uh, shaking up the MS Society. Uh, and then I was very pleased to see that they in fact did create a handout that reviewed uh, the gluten-free diet, the paleo diet, the uh, swank diet, the Mediterranean diet, the evidence, limited evidence, that there was pro and con for all of those diets By that time, we had one little uh, research paper that came out. Our work had gotten mentioned. They didn't quite have the framework for my diet correct, but you know they had this out there. So they were finally telling people diet matters, and you should talk to your patients that these diets are out there and that they should consider that. Uh, And then I uh, versus the standard.
1: Standard American diet. Which was, what you eat, it doesn't matter. Correct. And so so many people who are listening to this podcast, whether they have gone through breast cancer or something else that's out there or traumatic brain injury, they often get that standard response, which is that diet doesn't matter. Just eat whatever you want. And now, for the first time, the MS Society, this is a pretty big deal,
0: is saying, actually, we think that diet does matter. matter. So that was 2015. Uh, Then they put out a call for dietary research. Uh, And so then we uh, wrote a proposal. Now, mind you, at at 2010, there were only two dietary prospective intervention studies that had ever been done. I was uh, one of the PIs. In 2015, uh, when they put out a call for dietary intervention studies, uh, again, I I was one of the few people doing dietary intervention studies. They ended up funding us. They gave us a million dollars. Incredible. So we launched that in August of 2016. And when that confirmation
1: came in, that you had funding from them, where were you? And like, wh- like, give me the mental state and where were you exactly when you got the news?
0: Oh, this is wild. Um, so I had just had surgery on my back for spinal stenosis. I uh, was at, at home going through my email and I got this email from the MS Society. And it's from uh, Nick LaRocca and he said, Terry, give me a call. So I called him. And he said, well, here, this is blah, blah, blah. He gave me the, the news, uh, and so I was like, wow. Called my, called my staff and said, okay, we're, this is what's happening. Uh, and then we ended up uh, uh, getting everything uh, lined up and uh, started enrolling uh, participants in August of 2016.
1: Wow, a full circle moment to being banned. To, banned, to getting a million dollar check,
0: to get a million do dollar check, to funding
1: that has funding. the ability to change people's lives,
0: and 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 the other uh, thing that is immensely satisfying. So in 2010, um, there are two people doing dietary intervention studies for MS. Now in 2020, ten years later, there are uh, 13 dietary intervention studies, of, uh, and I'm involved in five of the 13. Incredible. So we've made huge progress, and that progress is really driven uh, excuse me, by the public, uh, because it was the public's response to my TED Talk, to my book, that drove the MS Society to create the funding initiative, which then allowed for all these little pilot studies to be underway, which are allowing for larger studies funded by the NIH. The public is the big driver.
1: The public and the ability of, you know, often in this landscape, social media sometimes gets negative connotation but it's really through the power of social media people sharing your TED talk that being able to share their own patient testimonials online on Twitter on Facebook on Instagram correct. and saying that guys I've been doing this. And this I'm not crazy I'm getting better or I'm not getting as worse as I was that
0: or you know the, the, the people that we have who say they tried the drugs and then they lost their insurance lost their job couldn't afford the drugs so now this like well that's all I've got, so I'm gonna do diet and lifestyle, but now, since it's all I've got, I'm actually gonna do it 100%. 100%. And their contact is saying, oh my God, my life's been transformed, my pain is gone, my vision is better, my hands are working better, I can walk better. Time and time again we hear that. People stay, they're using these potent drugs, they finally can't work, have to go off the drugs because now they can't afford them, and now they realize like, it's all I've got is diet and lifestyle. Mm and they finally actually do it. Now, the Walsh protocol doesn't work at 70% or 80% or 90%. You gotta actually do the whole, really implement the dietary choices.
1: It's a central portion of it. Before we get into some of the new things you've added into the book and the learnings that have been there for the last few years since publishing it and the TED Talk, talk about the research landscape from here on? What's coming up and what's your hope and your dream, you never know who's listening <laughs> to this podcast, of what you'd like to see funded?
0: So the, the big question is, if I'm newly diagnosed, I'm terrified about my disease, uh, the neurologist is trying to tell me I have to take these terrible drugs so I don't become profoundly disabled. I'd like to know, could I just do diet and lifestyle and not take the drugs? We don't have any studies that compare the two, controlled or, or randomized. So doing that study will be profoundly helpful. Now, I have f- funds to do a small study. Um, getting funds so we could make that study much larger would be, of course, uh, excellent. But and being, what does it take to fund something like that with the, all so, your
1: experience? Like,
0: oh, This is millions of dollars. Because yeah. what you're doing is you're hiring staff to train and support people to implement the diet and lifestyle. You are... Adding MRIs at the beginning, at the end. We're adding all these biomarkers uh, and then blinded assessments. And then you want to be able to bring people in for the control arm who who are getting usual care. And uh, we're not supporting them with uh, diet and lifestyle. And ideally, you'd like to have a couple hundred people in that study. Right. So, because you'd like to uh, power it uh, with enough people so you can clearly answer. Can you? what happens if you don't take drugs? And it may be that yeah, uh, taking drugs uh, plus doing diet and lifestyle is better, or it may be that not taking drugs and doing diet and lifestyle is better. We really don't know, but that would be an a incredible study to answer. With the funding I do have, we can do a small study with just uh, diet and lifestyle compared to control uh, so we can begin to get the safety numbers to know, am I creating harm by letting people do diet and lifestyle without the drugs?
1: Right, from the point of diagnosis, is there a difference in terms of the intervention of just going straight to lifestyle and all the interventions in the Walls protocol? Correct. Or, you know, going into traditional uh, drugs. uh, Drugs plus lifestyle.
0: That's a very compelling question. We get uh, a lot of questions about that. Uh, I would like to um, know that answer. And I'm very transparent. We don't know that answer. Uh, that's why this next study uh, is so, so important. Uh, the other th- uh, studies that we're, we're doing, and uh, we're writing grants for it, I'm, uh, is to develop the animal model to study the walls protocol uh, in little mice so you can compare doing the little uh, drugs to doing uh, diet and lifestyle. Uh, so we're in that process of creating the uh, mouse chow that, that goes with that and designing those studies because another reason that my colleagues are more comfortable with drugs is they have the mouse model that explains all the mechanisms. Mm. So this is very rare that you get to see that an intervention works in humans, and we haven't worked out through millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of research in the animals to know what are the precise molecular pathways that are involved. Um, and again, this is part of what, what is so exciting, um, being at the university, I have my scientific colleagues, basic scientists, who are like, Terry, this is so exciting to be able to be part of your research team to begin to elucidate the, the mechanistic pathways that are responsible for the transformations you're seeing in clinic
1: because of what you're seeing in your own story and from a lot of anecdotal stories that people are writing in, and from the early research that you've done out there, if that continues to hold true at bigger and bigger levels in these studies that you want to do, it fundamentally changes changes the approach of all, not just autoimmune diseases, but the thinking for other chronic diseases too.
0: And uh, we did have the presence of mind uh, to freeze biospecimens for all of my studies. So I have a freezer full of biospecimens, Uh, and again, you know, if we had more donors uh, coming in, we could go back to my freezer with my basic science colleagues and then pay for the analyses to look at these molecular pathways, the changes in gene expression, the changes in the metabolome, uh, the changes uh, in epigenetics. Um, So, yes. Powerful. Powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. It's hard to sleep at night. It's so exciting.
1: I know. Incredibly exciting. Talk to me about some of the new things that you've put in the paperback version of the book. It's the same foundational protocol that's there. Yes. And you've added a lot of new insights based on the learnings.
0: Well, the, the first thing to the functional medicine colleagues that are listening out there, the reason that our patients don't get better sometimes is usually not because I didn't order the right test or the right supplement. It's because my patients struggled with implementing the... the protocol in the first place. The, the protocol. It's really hard to implement diet and lifestyle changes. Uh, and so I, I've done a lot of work with uh, health behavior change uh, from my experience in the, in the VA, uh, where I'm helping people uh, who are severely disabled living on food stamps, how to help them be successful. So. Uh, there's a lot more in here about how to successfully help people adopt and sustain behavioral change, uh, and including for people who are living on food stamps. So that very, very, very and accessibility
1: important. Accessibility is a huge, huge Correct. issue because often it's thought of as these interventions are just so expensive.
0: The, the interventions are expensive. The testing is expensive. You can only do this if you have a Whole Foods. You can only do this if you can only get organic foods. Uh, and so I, I walk through that and I remind people that my patients at the VA were living on food stamps. What's one of the and biggest... They were, living, they were living in rural Iowa having to go to this little small dinky rural grocery stores. So yes, if you can do strictly organic you'll recover more quickly but you can still recover living on food stamps.
1: For people who do have limited funds or yes. on Social Security or food stamps don't have that accessibility that maybe some individuals have. What was one of the biggest things you added into the book to help them implement the program?
0: So we talk about uh, you you do the best you can given the resources that you have. You have to learn how to begin cooking.
1: That's fundamental.
0: We have to have you to begin cooking at home, uh, doing things like uh, making a menu, uh, making a grocery list, shopping, planning for leftovers, so that you're using all of your resources and you're not wasting things. Uh, then we talk about uh, things that are easier to, to begin, meditation and mindfulness, uh, and uh, doing that, uh, how to improve your vagal tone uh, to get in that parasympathetic state where we do more of our uh, digest uh, and repair and maintenance phase.
1: One thing that I saw you do right before we started is you did a quick gargle. Was that part of activating the vagal?
0: We want to gargle.
1: Yeah. Talk Uh, talk to us about gargling.
0: So gargling. Which my
1: grandmother, I come from like Indian tradition, Ayurveda, like she was so big on like, oh, you should gargle each morning. And, you know, she didn't have the tools or resources or the research to be explaining why. She just knew that her grandmother had taught her that and how it was a great way to start the day. And not just saltwater gargles when you're sick or your throat is acting no, up, just, but as like a way to activate in the
0: morning. Right, you, you gargle to activate your vagal nerve. Yeah, and you can sing, you can hum, you can do voice, uh, voice training, you could do chants. Uh, you could do uh, breath work uh, an exhalation, that's twice to three times as long as your inhalation. Uh, you could do labyrinth walking Uh, Diaphragmatic breathing. You could do a gentle neck massage, range of motion. All of these things are very nice um, vagal tone activators.
1: In the case of you gargling right before the interview, is it sort of to put you in a place of just rest and relax before you're on camera and talking? Yes,
0: yes. You want to have your voice um, calm. You want to have your throat calm. And I like to get into that uh, uh, more vagal activated state it's it's a it's a great thing to do before your meals mm. chewing your food <laughs> you now chewing your food having bitters eating something that's bitter before your meal all, all these things very good for uh, bagel tone in
1: addition to the accessibility What are some other things, as you were mentioning earlier in the interview, the research has come so far in the last few years, even since you've published your book, what are some additional items you felt more comfortable recommending, where in the beginning it was like, okay, we know vegetables are good, we know (laughs) this, you know, it was like more politically correct based on the learnings and the research that was out there. What's something that you felt like, okay, I can really go all in on this recommendation because now the science is a lot clearer?
0: So, hormesis? Ketogenic eating, fasting. Mm-hmm. So we talked. Uh, I, I talked about, uh, and I had three levels to my diet: an easy introductory level, the Walls diet, then the next level, Walls Paleo, which is basically the diet that we uh, investigate, and then a ketogenic version of my diet. Uh, now I've I've made uh, several nuances with variations in the ketogenic diet. So for those who have to avoid saturated fat, uh, we have a olive oil version. And then we talk about fasting, the various ways that you can fast, that you can get into ketosis without being in a high fat diet. Uh, And uh, we talk about the benefits of extended fast, uh, prolonged fast. Uh, I talk about uh, the fact that I uh, like to time restrict. I'll I'll eat typically one meal a day. Uh, And then uh, a week out of every month, I will do uh, either a calorie restricted fast uh, or a water only fast
1: so in a day like today where you're in los angeles you're visiting and you have different interviews and things like that you drink you know a little bit of tea have you eaten today and will you eat later on so today no. is just today's well, fasting today's fasting and did you plan it that way yes and what do you notice for yourself on days that you fast like this on a regular basis
0: um well if i did this for five days seven days i'll be pretty hungry by the fifth and seventh day yeah Uh, for the first two days it's very energizing yeah you know uh uh, eating digesting your food uh requires uh it's it's a a lot of work metabolically to digest your food and so paradoxically uh, in the first uh, one to two days uh, some the first few times you do this it is not easy but after you've been uh, fasting more consistently you may find that it's uh, quite energizing.
1: And give us the science pitch on fasting. We've, done, we've talked about fasting in a lot of episodes. We've done a couple of episodes on fasting. But in the context here, where there may be listeners that hadn't heard that, give us the elevator pitch on the science of fasting.
0: So uh, it has to do something called hormesis. If you have intermittent mild stress from which your body can recover uh, and repair, uh, that will give you the chemical signals to improve the efficiency and effectiveness of how your cells run the chemistry of life. So your ancestral mother and father, thousands of generations ago, uh, would intermittently uh, have captured their game by being an endurance hunter uh, and depleting their glycogen stores. Or they had a terrible hunt and didn't have any food for a few days and depleted their glycogen stores. And if they didn't have the uh, machinery to tolerate that well, they probably did not have reproductive success. So hardwired in all of us is that resilience to tolerate intermittent stress from uh, glycogen, uh, being depleted, depletion, so being in ketosis. But you have to be able to repair uh, from that stress. It turns out being in stress from cold, mild cold, mild heat, That's also really good for us. Our bones are built, our muscles are built from mild stress. If there's no gravity, your bones dissolve, they disappear. If your muscles don't do any work, they disappear because uh, they're a a, a very expensive resource for us, our bones and our muscles and our brain. So we'll replace it with fat. We'll, We'll make it go away if we aren't using it. So we have to use these things and they have to stress them. But then you need to have enough recovery time to repair the damage that would have occurred from that mild stress that made, gave you the signals to build a stronger bone, a stronger muscle, a more resilient mind.
1: It's incredible and there's so much more research that's out there even in the last five years than yeah. was there previously. And bottom line, we weren't designed to eat three meals a day all the time.
0: And we're not designed to be comfortable. We're not all designed to be comfortable. We're designed to have um, things be difficult. Now, none of us wants to have, give up all of our comforts, but it does mean that we, we benefit greatly from intermittent, mild stress.
1: I was recently uh, visiting a vineyard, an organic vineyard, and uh, they were just taking us through the basics of how to make strong grapes. And they were like, look, in a way, we have to stress these vines out. We can't give them all the water that they want. We can't grow the biggest fruits that are out there. If we want really great grapes and strong grapes that can withstand disease and other aspects, we have to limit certain things like water and other exposures, and we don't Mm -hmm. want the plants to get lazy. Because when they get lazy, they produce more grapes, but those grapes are bad quality and they're more disease-prone, and we're the same.
0: You know, I've been reading a lot more about uh, evolutionary biology, Um, and I think that that's one of the things that I I brought to functional medicine is my interest in evolutionary biology, ancestral health principles, and functional medicine. Yeah, because you Uh, really
1: didn't see functional medicine talking as much about paleo, for example. Correct. They would talk a lot about, like, the Mediterranean diet, and I thank you for that. (laughs) Right? Yeah. And a lot of the doctors that I would say that were most progressive or some of the younger folks would say, look, IFM is great and you'll understand all the pathways. You'll understand exactly what happens. You'll understand the gut microbiome. But in terms of the recommendations, we've gone so much further than what's available to us out there. And thank you for bringing that into the world and introducing that conversation.
0: Correct, Um, and as I evaluate things, I now do it through the lens of evolutionary biology, uh, and I think about, do we have evidence from our ancestral mothers and fathers that have used uh, these concepts, these principles in the past? Uh, and, if they, and if we do, then I'm much more comfortable with experimenting this, uh, or considering that this is an area that we should investigate, and I'd actually get my basic science colleagues at Iowa thinking more along the evolutionary biology uh, principles as, as well. Uh, in that, I, I think about um, the behavior uh, psychology, how to get people to... Because we're wired to uh, uh, enjoy pleasure. We're, we're wired to enjoy today's pleasure over tomorrow's benefit, uh, and we're wired to enjoy comfort. Uh, and so that's part of why behavior change is so incredibly difficult. Uh, So again, thinking about all of that to help people and help clinicians figure out how to help their patients be more successful with foregoing today's pleasure and uh, being willing to value tomorrow's benefit.
1: What do you think is one of the biggest tips that you could bring in for somebody that feels like they've tried different programs or has had a challenge in implementing kind of any health program out there or wants to consider doing the Walls protocol, what can support them in the process of implementing and tapping into behavior change so that they can actually succeed in the program?
0: I learned this one from my vets. And that is, understand what you want your health for. I have a clear understanding of your mission and purpose in life. Have a big, hairy, audacious goal. Because we're asking you to do something that's difficult. Uh, and so, to be willing to take on something that's difficult, uh, it's helpful for you to have a clear mission, a clear purpose, a big goal. And so, you know, for some of my vets, it might have been, I want to dance with my son or daughter at their wedding. I um, want to walk again. Uh, and so, once we get their goal, then I can break down to, okay, now we can talk about what's the little, small, next, micro commitment towards getting you a little bit closer to that big goal. Uh, And then we talk about addiction, that a lot of our food um, dietary issues are tied into cravings and addictions. So there are things that a functional medicine doc can do to help you lower the suffering from addiction. So we can do those kinds of things. Uh, And then if I'm thinking behavior change, um, if you remember the marshmallow uh, Experiment with kids, you yeah. put a marshmallow in front of them, can you not eat the marshmallow? and can you uh, wait, and different gratification? Wait. If you got it out of the kid's line of sight, they could double how long they could wait before eating the, the marshmallow. So that means we have to help people create an environment where, they, where success is easier and failure is harder. And again, that, that's all in my chapters on uh, behavior change. How to make it easier for you to succeed, Harder for you to fail. there are a bunch of things that we that you can do to help and there are a bunch of things that your family and your friends and your physician can do to help you. How
1: important is community as part of that
0: process? Again, this is what I learned from my vets. you know I, I thought all that one-on-one time with me would would make the difference. Well, golly gee, it's the one-on-one time with your peers in community. Uh, that is so powerful. Behavior change uh, is much more effective uh, with peer mentors, peer support. It's very much like the Alcoholics Anonymous model, that that peer support, that sponsor, uh, was very effective for them, and it's uh, really quite effective in uh, health behavior change as well.
1: Because we know from things like the Framingham study of like uh, obesity, the spread of obesity in social networks, that things that we don't think of as contagious diseases, like obesity, can become, or communicable diseases, sorry, not contagious, communicable, they can be that way because we adopt the behaviors of the people that are closest to us, our friends more so than even our spouses, or our partner, or even our kids.
0: So what we're talking talking about now is cultural evolution. So evolutionary biology, uh, you know, talked about how our DNA uh, through random mutations uh, lets us get steadily more closely aligned to our environment. And then cultural evolution, cha- our, our behavior changes, uh, leads to the development of these mismatched diseases. And so I- I'm spending a lot of time thinking about how we can use cultural evolution to help us reduce the severity and incidence of these mismatch diseases. And that will have to be my next book. I a lot of So we're working on that I'm uh, covering that in my uh, practitioner retreats uh, and in my seminar. And I I can see that that's where we'll have to go for my next book.
1: So your big, hairy, audacious goal, if I'm hearing you correctly, when you first got started, was so driven by your family. You know, you've teared up a few times talking about your kids, your wife, and how much your family meant to you and how much you wanted to be there for them. As your journey continues, and you look at yourself now, how does that goal show up for you? What's that big, hairy, audacious goal, what's that big why that drives you moving forward from here?
0: We can create an epidemic of health. We could use our cultural evolution to create an epidemic of health so that instead of uh, steadily worsening uh, rates of uh, obesity, autoimmunity, mental health disease, we see steadily improving health and vitality. Uh, And that is through a cultural revolution. Uh, That's certainly possible. We'll have to help people. We'll have to help create a paradigm shift for them. Uh, And we will probably have to do this. Uh, Unfortunately, I think our government uh, is not going to be in a position to be able to do that very well. Our corporations will not be able to do that very well. It's going to be You and me through our books, our podcasts, reaching directly out to the public. It can happen.
1: And here you are just doing exactly that? Yes. Dr. Terry Walls, thank you for being here. How can our listeners find you and keep in touch with all the research and the great work that you're doing out there and the other offerings that are available?
0: So um, my website's terrywalls.com. If you add forward slash research papers. You get uh, to see all the papers that we have. And we had this amazing video with those gait changes, people who are struggling to walk, who can, uh, you'll see their uh, gait steadily improving. So I'd recommend that. Uh, I I would come to our seminar where we have hundreds of people come year after year to learn more about our um, approach to health and wellness uh, and recovery. Uh, and for the health professionals, think about coming and getting certified so you can learn about the Walls behavior change model, which I think is is the driver how we can help our patients be more successful with transforming their mismatched diseases, getting rid of them, and reclaiming their health and vitality.
1: And if there's people that are out there that are looking for a doctor that's certified in that, is there a database or yes. is there an easy way to find?
0: Yeah, if you, if you come to terrywalls.com, uh, and there, uh, there's uh, under resources, you'll see the links to the certifications.
1: Fantastic. And you're pretty active on Facebook.
0: Yes. Facebook a little bit more than Instagram, I see. Well, no, we have more things on uh, Facebook, uh, but my wife manages the Instagram, yeah. so you follow me, you'll see what we're eating, you'll also see that I go to the women's basketball games a lot. You uh, can see you in
1: the sauna, talking about sauna. stuff and the uh, benefits I'm of sauna. i singing, yep, yep, so. Yeah. And the new book, well, the paperback version of the book, which is 30% new content I think I was yeah, reading absolutely. that was there. So I consider that pretty new, It's very new, new content that, that's inside of there. It's out, The Walls Protocol, a radical new way to treat all chronic autoimmune conditions using paleo principles. It's available. You can find it in the show notes that's out there. Dr. Terry Walls, thank you for coming on the Broken Brain Podcast, spreading your word, and really having the courage. I think the thing that is really so admirable and beautiful in your story is there's so many times where you crossed an intersection where you could have stopped because of backlash or Mm -hmm. what colleagues were saying and you continued on and you went direct to the public and the world is better because of it. So thank you for that. Thank you. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not, I repeat, it's not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search there, find a provider database. It's important that you have somebody in your corner that's qualified, that's trained, that's a licensed healthcare practitioner helping you make changes especially when it comes to your health.